Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by my co-host, former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Well, there is so much in the news going on, especially on the legal front. And with so much legal news going on, we really wanted to get our listeners some insights from one of the best minds out there. And that's why we were thrilled to finally land one of the guests we've wanted most on Beyond Politics for a long time. Kimberly Atkins Store is a senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. She's also the inaugural columnist for The Emancipator, a joint independent anti-racist multimedia project from Globe Opinion. She's also an MSNBC contributor and co-host of the Politicon podcast, Sisters-in-Law, which features our recent Beyond Politics guest, Joyce Vance. And if all of our listeners and subscribers do nothing else today, and if you're not subscribed to Beyond Politics, yes, please, please do, please do. But please go out and also subscribe to Sisters-in-Law. You won't be sorry you did. Kimberly, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me. We are absolutely thrilled to have you. Let's start off with some good news. I think we're all pretty happy. Most of us, I guess, out there who are listening to this are pretty happy about Ketanji Brown Jackson, who will be our newest Supreme Court justice. Now, we know there's a six to three conservative majority on the court, but a justice isn't necessarily limited in her or his impact. How good does that sound to say, by the way, that it's like, it really is kind of kind of 50-50 these days. Yeah. A justice isn't limited in her or his impact by how many majority opinions she can write. There are other things that she can do. So what impact do you expect Justice Brown Jackson to have? And why do you think, as you've written, that the lead time that she's going to have before she assumes the job is such a major asset to her? Yes. So it it is. So uh, to your first point, uh, you're absolutely right. This nomination does not change the ideological makeup of the court as we think of it. There will still be the same number of justices appointed by Republicans as by Democrats. You still have that 6-3 split. But by joining the court when she is Justice Jackson, will bring a lot of different perspectives that are lacking on the court. Of course, she is a Black woman, be the first time a Black woman is on the court, um, which is very important to have the court that makes decisions that affect all Americans to better reflect America. She's also a former defense attorney, a former public defender. Um, The first time ever a federal public defender has been on the court and the first time since Thurgood Marshall, any public defender has been on the court, which is important as the court takes on its criminal cases. You know, there are several, there have been several prosecutors, former prosecutors on the court, certainly a lot of former judges, but that perspective is important. It's a geographic difference. You know, there are a lot of folks from uh, the Northeast and the West Coast, like kind of taking over the court for a while. And in recent nominations, including hers, really brings um, some geographic uh, differences. She's from Florida. And so that that's something that's, you know, I believe she's the first justice or the first justice in a long time from Florida, forgetting all the firsts. And yes, and so for the first time also, the court will not be majority white men for the first time ever. So these are all really important things. And yes, although she will rarely be writing on big, but the big hot button issues that we'll probably be talking about in the majority, 
She'll be writing dissent, which are important, which speak to the future. She'll be talking in conference with all of the justices, giving her perspective, giving her uh, input from her years as a judge, from her experience coming from a law enforcement family, being a defense attorney. She'll bring all those things to bear. And I think that has a big impact in the way that the justices will think about cases, even if it doesn't change the outcome. And you think that the fact that she's going to have a few months of runway before she right. rolls job is going to be particularly helpful. That That's something that hadn't occurred to me before I saw your, your article. Yeah. Why is that? It's really amazing. So usually when a Supreme Court justice uh, a nominee is confirmed, there's a vacancy on the court or a soon to be vacancy on the court. So the, the time between that confirmation and when they are put on the court is really fast. Now, a, a really fast one was the last one, Amy Coney Barrett, from the moment she was nominated to when she was on the bench here in arguments, it was about a month. It was so fast. This time that her judge Justice Jackson will take the bench after the retirement of just Justice Breyer, who will be on through the end of this term. So that's late June, early July, we're talking. So she has several months. And then there's also the summer session where the court does work, but they're not hearing arguments. So there will be so much time for her to prepare mentally, to prepare professionally for the task that is ahead of her. There will be time for the nation to learn more about her. I mean, I don't know what kind of media she might do or what kind of op-ed she might write or something just to sort of give the nation a chance to say, yes, this is a this is a big moment for America. This is a milestone. And that little bit of space, especially after the confirmation hearings, which, you know, I found that there were a lot of unfounded vitriolic attacks thrown at her to sort of shake that off, think about it think about the task ahead of her and think about the work. I think that's a tremendous asset. If I had a big job that I was really, you know, the biggest career moment of my life and I had a little time to think about it and prep for it and get my head right, I think that would be really beneficial. So she gets that and America gets that chance to sort of get to know her before she gets to work. Or maybe we'll invite her on Beyond Politics. Paul, what do you think? If she's going to do media... She'd be, an she'd be an interesting guest. I okay, think she'd, she'd, she'd have something to say, whether she'd say it or not, we don't know. But so, so Kimberly, just uh, in a lead up to my next question, I, I had a 30 year career, an active career as an attorney. I started out as a murder and white collar crime prosecutor for the state. I uh, practiced as a criminal defense attorney for, for years. And uh, always uh, on my mind were the ethical rules that govern attorneys and judges and questions about, among other things, conflicts of interest that came up in a variety of ways. And so when when the revelations about Ginny Thomas's text messages to Mark Meadows came out, which were, you know, veered between imploring him and stage managing him to overturn the election in the run up to January 6th. When, 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 when all those came out, I, I, I couldn't help but think about conflict of interest rules. And I mean, after all, Ginny is the activist, right wing, right wing activist wife of a sip, sitting Supreme Court a justice who whose career began with a bang and mostly seemed to have followed with a whimper, although now he's asking more questions for some surprising reason I can't figure out. But, you know, so I, I assume that Justice Thomas should and would recuse himself from hearing 
any insurrection cases. Now, that may happen, but it's the Supreme Court. And their rules about conflict of interest and ethics, they make them up apparently as they go along. And even if he were to recuse himself, is, is that sufficient? Is, is his position on the court still tenable, given what we increasingly know about his wife's position as a, as a driver of right-wing politics and, yeah. and her involvement with groups that file briefs before the court? I mean, what's a poor court to do? Yeah. So that's, that's, you are right. This is, there's a lot to unpack in this issue. You are right when it comes to the U.S. Supreme Court, although they are technically bound by the same ethical rules, including rules that require them to recuse in a case where they have some sort of conflict. There is no enforcement mechanism. The justices enforce it themselves. They decide for themselves whether or not there is a conflict. If they think it is, they recuse. They don't have to give the reason why. Often we, as reporters, find in a case that a justice recuses, we'll look at their financial disclosures, for example, and see maybe they own stock in, the, in one of the parties. But there's nothing that makes them do it. And so we've already seen, I mean, you asked, will Justice Thomas recuse based on the involvement that we've seen from the disclosure of these text messages, recuse from the cases that involve the January 6th committee or anything about that? He already hasn't. Like there already was a case about President Trump's papers, or the, the White House papers and the disclosure that went to the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas participated in that case and was the lone dissenter in you know, objecting to these documents being released. So we already have the answer to that question, which is likely no. We also know that Ginny Thomas, and I want to be clear to everyone, there is no rule that says that the spouse of a judge is bound by ethical rules. They are not. Spouses are their own individual individual people and can do what they like and have whatever views they like. But in the case of Ginny Thomas, you use the right word, which is activists. And for decades, she has been involved in organizations, in fundraising, in groups that directly are involved in Supreme Court litigation. They write briefs urging the court to take one position or another. They fund a lot. They fund challenges that go before the Supreme Court. So that's a direct connection. That seems to me a pretty direct conflict. And she has been involved in cases from... Um, Citizens United to the travel ban case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court. She was involved in groups that actively litigated to overturn Obamacare. There have been so many cases already that Justice Thomas has participated in that his wife was involved in the party. So I think this is bringing, this is coming to light right now because of those really explosive and unbelievable text messages. But this is revealing something that has been a problem for a long time. And I was really surprised at the conclusion of the, the White House commission to examine Supreme Court reforms, which is really, to me, was done just to sort of pacify the people who were calling for court packing and really was never intended to do anything, that there was not a clearer, a clearer, it, it, forget the whole thing about the number of people on the court for a moment. I know that's politically explosive, but a clear statement that says, look, the way the Supreme Court does things is just not tenable. They need to be bound. They need, there needs to be a, a enforcement mechanism, the same as with other judges that require them to adhere to ethics rules. And that just didn't happen. And I don't think it ever will.
You know, just I just want to I just want to follow up on just sort of, you know, I, I suppose this is a more lighthearted follow up about this really challenging issue. I, I'm admitted to the Supreme Court. I was elected as a congressman. I had been hired for to be a prosecutor by former Justice David Souter. And so when I got to Washington, Justice Souter really kindly invited my wife and I to visit him in his chambers and have lunch. And, you know, it was really, it was, it was my first time behind the scenes in this, in the Supreme Court. And it was just in this extraordinary visit to visit his chambers, which by the way, were so covered with books, you couldn't sit down anywhere or even work at his desk because there was, no, it looked like the entire the library of, uh, yeah. of Alexander. He's a known order. Right. He's a, he, he was hoarding books. And we had lunch in the beautiful dining room in the Supreme Court. And he, of course, was served a yogurt in a plastic cup while while we were, which was his standard, a yogurt and an apple. It was it, he, that's what he ate. But what it, it, it gets me thinking about what must be or if there was anything going is anything going on behind the scenes in the Supreme Court about this issue is Chief Justice Roberts, who has not necessarily always followed the strict right wing line. And, we, you know, we can talk about some of that later. But has, did he call Justice Thomas in and and say, Clarence, this doesn't look good for us. It doesn't look good for the court. What are you thinking? I mean, you know, is Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Comey Barrett getting together with Justice Thomas and say, stick to your guns, Clarence. They can't do a thing to you. What's going on behind the scenes? Because that's the only enforcement there is. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It, it does make you wonder if that is happening. We do know that the Chief Justice is very concerned about and protective of the court as an institution. So this has to be something that concerns him. We've seen him on occasion show signs of that. For example, with the recent shadow docket cases, cases that are decided without getting a full briefing and without going to arguments and has received a lot of backlash recently. He joined the minority in one of those rulings, basically agreeing with the fact that these cases shouldn't be decided in a way that doesn't have doesn't go through the full briefing and merits process of the court. So every now and again, he will show that. And we, the chief justice is also the head of something called the judicial conference, which is the body that sets these rules and enforces them. So you would think he would have some sort of leverage there. He can't make Justice Thomas recuse. I don't know if he's had that conversation with him that I, I'm, I'm equally curious about that. You would think that that would happen, but Justice Thomas is also the longest serving member on that court. He is the most senior associate justice. So I think it's very well may be the case that he believes that he can just keep doing things the way that he's been doing and no one, not even the chief justice can tell him otherwise. Let's continue on the theme of sedition because, you know, why not? Who thought a couple of years ago that we'd be having that sentence, right? Let's, let's keep yeah. talking sedition. So you had a recent episode of the Sisters-in-Law podcast that you devoted to the seven hour, 37 minute gap in Donald Trump's call logs on January 6th. Now you've previously written for the Boston Globe that I wanna quote here, a year after a seditious insurrection, federal prosecutors don't seem willing to treat it that way. And you noted that history is full of examples where other uprisings have resulted in charges of seditious conspiracy and insurrection, something that despite ample video evidence and the admissions of those involved, 
hasn't happened here. So given everything that we've learned in the almost four months since you wrote those sentences, including the gap and flushing documents down the toilet, literally, and the Eastman memo, let's, let's not skate over the Eastman memo. Correct. Are prosecutors going far enough? Is Merrick Garland pushing hard enough or are we collectively coming up short? Yeah, I think the question is, I don't know yet. We don't know yet. I will say that since I wrote that column, there have been two charges of seditious conspiracy that have been brought. So, you know, maybe the attorney general reads the globe. I don't know. But that has happened. But yes, we have still seen a relatively slow pace when it comes to prosecuting these cases. We saw reporting I think a couple of weeks ago that indicated that even President Biden has been sort of chagrined at the at the fact that Merrick Garland is is working so meticulously. He wanted a go-getter prosecutor and that Merrick Garland is asking is acting more like a ponderous judge and I my thought was well Mr. President you nominated a ponderous judge to be attorney general so the, how did you not see this coming? So yeah, it's interesting on our on our podcast, the sisters in law, we're we're split on this. I think Barb McQuaid and, and Joyce are a little more. They're both former uh, federal prosecutors, and they're a little more willing to say, "Look, these cases, you have to follow the evidence. You have to be meticulous for something like this. You can't miss, and so you have to really be make sure that you have a strong case. And it takes how much time it takes." Joyce and I, I mean, Jill Weinbanks and I are more tapping our feet and saying what's going on. I mean, Jill Weinbanks, as you know, was a water, Watergate, one of the Watergate prosecutors. And, and she said we, we, were, we could have done Watergate three times by this time and, and really had that all sewn up. And as to that, you know, that tape, that missing tape, right? There was, it was what, 18 minutes in Watergate? Now this is seven hours. <laughs> we, we already know so much about what happened during those seven hours from other people. We're constantly getting text messages and email exchanges were hearing that, you know, Ivanka tried to call Trump and tell him to stop. So he was getting phone calls. He was making phone calls, yet there's no log of anything. It exists somewhere to whatever extent it hasn't been destroyed. As you said, he hasn't, he would eat pieces of paper. He would flush them down the toilet, rip them up. There was somebody's job in the white house to, to try to go through the trash and pick up the pieces and tape them back together. But I think there have been hundreds of people who have testified before the January 6th committee. I'm certain there's been an ongoing grand jury with the Justice Department. I'm sure hundreds of witnesses have been interviewed. I have to have faith that they do have a good idea of what happened. And they're just trying to be meticulous about putting that case together. But I don't know. So, Paul, we're going to actually I'm going to break in (laughs) with two things. First of all, you're a former playwright. I think you should write the one man show that depicts Donald Trump during so, him sm- I'm smelling an egot for you out of that. Yeah, that that's that, number that, one. That's a number good two. One. Here's the big question. You're you kind of straddle the the analysis of law and politics in your writing and in your podcasting and in your TV commentary. So I was hoping you could take both angles into account and address the fact that a federal judge recently rendered an opinion that former president Donald Trump, more likely than not, in his words, committed felony obstruction. That's that's a crime, a felony, in the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So my question to you is, if there is indeed sufficient evidence to support such a charge, should Attorney General Merrick Garland bring that case against 
Donald Trump? Or are the downsides, including the constitutional downsides, the precedent, and the political downsides, too great? So, yes. So that statement from the judge came in a a civil proceeding involving John Eastman, who I believe that we, we talked about. And so, yes, it's a little different. The legal standard is a little different. And he used the words more likely than not, which is what when you are considering some sort of preliminary procedural action in a case, that is the standard. So in the criminal probe, it's a little different for the DOJ to bring charges. They would need to know by a beyond reasonable doubt that they can make the case that this happened. So there's a bit of a gap in the standard, a bit of a gap in the amount of evidence, a higher hurdle for the DOJ to clear. That being said, um, it does give a peek uh, into the mind of a judge who is examining this evidence and really painting some tea leaves that there may be some there there. We do know that there have been cases, in other cases where reasonable minds can disagree. In in New York, for example, New York prosecutors there, some left over the failure of the Manhattan prosecutor to bring charges against Donald Trump when they thought that they had some, that they were solid, and the prosecutor was being a little more circum, you know, being a little more careful and and not being so sure. Prosecutors don't want to bring a case if they don't know they can get a conviction. I'm sure Joyce talked about that. And so that's, I think that's the struggle that's happening right now. There are probably a lot of cases where they're trying to figure out, do they have the goods? And even though you had this judge who basically said it out loud, it's under a different standard. It's not a slam dunk. And it just adds one little bit, one other data point as we're all here deciding, you know, trying to figure out what's the DOJ going to do? Is this going to um, result in more more charges? And is it going to um, result in Donald Trump himself being charged. I think that he should. I mean, that the, the Boston Globe did a, the, our editorial board did a series called Future Proofing the Presidency, where we said not only, you know, it, it not only can a president be held accountable criminally for this, but if the evidence is there, it's important, it's imperative that a president uh, be held accountable criminally because that's what it takes to preserve democracy. You know, we're very long gone are the days when, a pardon of Nixon was done because they, it was in the good of the country just to move forward and heal. I think a very good case could be made using Nixon saying he never he never admitted that he was wrong. He, he was defiant until the end. And if we continue to allow that, we really, really do greater damage to democracy. You know, just I, I just want to make a comment because I, I spent a, my early career as a prosecutor and I recall vividly a case where I was all, I mean, I was all in on, on bringing a grand jury in and presenting the case. And, you know, a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich if a prosecutor uh, really wants to. And in the end, I was overruled because my then supervisor, I was a young prosecutor, said, yeah, the, the guy's probably guilty of lying to Paul Hodes, but I'm not sure that we can prove that he's guilty of the crime. And in so you've got a case here involving the president of the United States and his and his top people. And in addition to the the facts of the case, which which seem like a slam dunk, if you're a careful prosecutor, you've also got to think of 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 other of other factors uh, that go into a decision about whether to prosecute, which include the mental state 
of the person who is doing whatever the alleged illegal act is. And that mental state, which the law is called mens rea, is a very, very interesting examination. In the case of a nutball like the former president, about in terms of trying to figure out what what is there was a Latin this, there, Paul? There's there's not a Latin term. That's a legal term that I've often employed. But so what was this guy thinking? What was his intent? You know, and you could get into motivation. There are all kinds of very, very hair splitting questions that a careful prosecutor has to has to ask. And as you've said, Attorney General, former J- Judge Merrick Garland seems to be one of the hair splitting kinds of, of prosecutors, not one of those go, gung ho, let's go get them yeah. uh, kind of guys. And that that may be it may prove in the end to be important. And maybe they're just waiting for the January 6th committee to finish their work and make it a little easier for them and make a criminal referral who, you know, there, there are a lot of factors that go into just the pure prosecutorial uh, decision about whether to do this, even though I may want, I mean, I want to see the guy in jail in an orange jumpsuit, right? That's that, that with every fiber of my being, if I was in Merrick Garland's shoes, I might be a little more cautious than Paul Hode's radio talking head. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. The, the issue of intent is an incredibly important one. Uh, mens rea, not only is it an element of whatever he, he may be charged with, it's incredibly difficult to prove. It's, it, there's, it's, inve- it's just think about it. It's really tough to present evidence of what a person is thinking at the time about what a person's motivation is at the time. It may be very well if Donald Trump actually truly believed somehow, despite all the facts, that there was election fraud, for example, that that could cut against a criminal charge being brought if they don't think they can prove the mens rea necessary to do that. So that's an incredibly important point. But I also think it's really important to understand that Everything that happened on January 6th was not the work of one, just one person. There were a lot of people working in concert to make that happen. And I am just as frustrated with the slow pace of the other, of action against other actors, where there is a lot of evidence in text messages and all kinds of other things, testimony that do spell out mens rea that there isn't more action there as well but the point that you're making especially if you're if if you are going to prosecute a former president you really have to make sure it's if you if you're going to shoot at the king you best not miss so i i do take that but i think that there's a lot more that could be happening in fact my thought is if more people closer to him were facing more charges then mm-hmm. that could speed up yep. the rest because that encourages cooperation right I just learned a lot there. I have to say, I learned that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. <laughs> I learned that Donald Trump's state of mind is fundamentally unknowable. And therefore, I'm going to put A and B together and suggest that Merrick Garland could prosecute Donald Trump for having the mindset of a ham sandwich. So <laughs> I have to, I, I, oh, by the way, the picture of him in an orange jumpsuit, the clash of the different hues of orange, we have to have an entire sartorial analysis of how does that work? Like, what do you match with, with different hues of orange? Look, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm way off track. I've taken us off track. I do want to get onto a different track because we could talk insurrection and sedition all day long. Talking about anything else has kind of a quality of, yes, but how was the play Mrs. Lincoln, you know, feel to it, given the, the 
deadly seriousness of that topic. But I want to turn to another topic that you've recently uh, written about, Kimberly, that I, I think just offers a perspective that's that's important and eye-opening. And uh, I really want listeners to, to hear about that. The House of Representatives passed a bill last month that would ban race-based hair discrimination at work, in federal programs, and in public accommodations. It's called the Crown Act, which in a delicious acronym, because that's all Congress, I mean, literally, this is like con- people in Congress sit around. I'm a former staffer. Yeah. You literally it's- sit around trying to come up with acronyms. I'm not making yeah. this up. That's all that's they true. do. In fact, that's, that's, all we- all, that, that's, all, that's all the staff is responsible for, is I want to pass this bill. You've got to come up with the right name that'll make it catchy and sexy. Oh, yeah. When when Don Young, who recently died, he was the chair of the uh, Transportation Committee. He was trying to shoehorn in his wife's name into the name of the Transportation Authorization Act in 2005 (laughs) that some poor staffer. I know the staffer had to come up with a crazy acronym so that the last two letters would be it was safety dash Lou, a legacy for users. Why? Because Lou was his wife's name. All right. Again, way off track. The Crown Act stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act. It was passed along party lines. Big surprise. And it's now heading to the Senate for a vote where maybe it won't get one. But Massachusetts, where where you work, Kimberly, actually passed a state version of this law. And you wrote a column about the importance of this kind of law. Why does this kind of law make such a difference? Yeah. And I think one thing I think is important is that I think a lot of people don't understand the importance. They think, oh, your hair, like, you know, who cares about someone doesn't like your hairstyle? This is really silly. Why are we passing about this? And I got some reaction to that as well. And it's it's more than that. I, I, as a Black woman, I can attest that in many professional settings, educational settings, I and others have been told that having our hair in its natural state, the way that it grows out of our hair, out of our heads, kinky and curly and not straight um, is unprofessional. That the ways, the styles that we use in order to protect our hair, because it's not straight, it's also very fragile. So when you see black women wearing braids or other styles, it's not just because it's stylish, although it is, but it's to protect the hair, to prevent it from being damaged by manipulating it every day. You can put that, put your hair up and and it can stay in that protective state for a period of time. It's really important, but very often we are told we cannot wear our hair that way. It's an immutable trait. It's like the color of our skin, which no one would say, oh, you cannot come in here with this brown skin anymore. That's very illegal. So what uh, this bill does is extends the same protect anti-discrimination protection against Black people, which should already cover that, but it often doesn't because it's coded in, well, they didn't follow the rules. Like with the military, only recently could people with natural hair styles, dreadlocks, sister locks be in the military. That was, a, that was against the military uniform code until recently. And so it's meant to expressly say, when we say no discrimination against race, that includes hair. It's important. I started that column by noting that not only do we have our first woman, first black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, but she has natural hair. She has sister locks. She has a style that if not very long ago, you were a lawyer. I couldn't imagine. I practice law in Boston. I could not imagine going into a courtroom with sister locks. I wouldn't have done it. I, I straight, I chemically straightened my hair, causing damage to my hair follicles that took years to heal. 
the entire time mm. I practiced law in Boston mm. because I knew that anything else would not have been accepted. So this is incredibly important. I'm heartened that it has passed in Massachusetts and about a other, dozen other states. Hopefully the folks in the Senate will come through as well. So I, I want to turn to go back to a question about the Supreme Court that you touched on uh, earlier in the show, and that involves the use of the shadow docket on the Supreme Court. The shadow docket is this basically off the books emergency procedure to make decisions. Recently, the shadow docket was used by the majority to reinstate a Trump era rule that limits a state's ability to block environmental polluting projects, as one would expect. Trump was all for environmental pollution. Let's have at it. Anything that, uh, anything that fouls the air and water, I'm for. Chief Justice Roberts joined in a blistering dissent, clearly concerned about the misuse and the increasing misuse of the shadow docket by his majority. And as you pointed out earlier, he's an institutionalist and, and well, he should be disturbed. What's what's to be done about it? What what can be done and, and why is it important? Yeah, so it is important. So there is a procedural way that the Supreme Court can issue orders. We call them orders, not opinions. If there is an emergency basis to do so without hearing, fully hearing a case. So generally speaking, when a case goes to, before the Supreme Court, the parties in it issue briefs. There are other people who are interested. They can issue briefs as well. There is an oral argument that is held. The justices get together, they decide, and then opinion is issued, which details how every single justice voted. And then justices can write opinions, dissents, and all that. A fairly open process for a very not so transparent body. The Supreme Court overall is not very transparent and they don't, the only way they explain what they do is in their opinions, really. But when you have these interim cases, so sometimes it's important to have a, an order. So the best example is a capital punish, punishment case mm -hmm. where a death row inmate is making, requesting a stay. The Supreme Court will sort of get together, decide and whether to issue the stay or not. They don't have to explain why. But they need to do that. They can't wait for a whole full briefing because by sure. then the person will be executed. Increasingly, parties have figured out, aha, we can ask for these sort of emergency stays in any number of cases and do so in a way that basically decides the case or at least lets us know what the court will do. And we don't have to go through this process. And that's being used in ways that have, in this case, struck down environmental policy, struck down the Biden's administration to reverse this Trump era policy without any explanation. It has been expanding religious rights, for example, and people who were uh, seeking stays over COVID restrictions, saying that it violated their religious rights to not be able to sit packed in a church. And the court said, yeah, you're right. You can't, you can't enforce that against them and other things like that. And that has been increasingly, Justice Elena Kagan in particular has become increasingly tired of this and keeps issuing dissents that really eviscerates this use of the court. It got a lot of attention in the press. So you ask what can be done, the answer is nothing. The court can do what it wants to do. But we have seen in a couple of uh, cases 
the court asked for oral arguments in shadow docket cases, essentially taking cases out of the shadow docket and putting it on the merits docket after receiving this criticism. And we've heard Justice Alito sort of firing back and getting very angry at people who even called it the shadow docket. He doesn't even like the name shadow docket. So we know the court is hearing this and they're sort of reacting sometimes. But as you said, in this in this Clean Water Act case, they still do it. The, the chief justice again issued, indicated that he didn't like it by joining that dissent. So we'll see. We'll see if that leads to any sort of change. But I think it's also, look, we talked um, on the podcast too about the fact that this was the Roberts court, but as it gets more shifts more Mm -hmm. to the right as more Trump appointees have been on it. You can see in ways, including this, that John Roberts is kind of losing control of the court in the way that he always seemed to have, the way he crafted together that Obamacare opinion that really took art, but left it in place, you know, trashed it, but left it in place. I don't think he could do that today. I don't think Mm -hmm. he still has that kind of power. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, really, it, it does kind of speak to the point you were making earlier which is maybe Congress and, you know, look, Paul, you're a former congressman. I mean, maybe Congress as the, the as Article one in the Constitution, the first branch that, that was set up, maybe it needs to think a little bit harder about reining in the judicial branch. But let's let's get to just one more topic, because it's another it's another piece that you covered very well on the Sisters in Law podcast recently, you talked about the involuntary manslaughter charges against the parents of a recent Michigan school shooter. Now, the administration is currently taking steps to go after so-called ghost guns. And recently, the gun manufacturer Remington was forced to pay $73 million in a civil settlement with the families of nine Sandy Hook shooting victims. So it seems like on the political front, the possibility of passing new laws to reduce gun violence is remote. At the same time, we do have these other legal avenues proceeding. So what do you make of kind of putting together things like updating legal definitions as in the case of ghost guns and pursuing civil liability cases and bringing criminal charges against people who may have been negligent with the possession of their guns as in Michigan? What do you think about this kind of multifaceted workaround approach to try to chip away at the gun violence problem? Yeah, I mean, I think we are seeing people, look, I, I, I applaud efforts to try to put into place reasonable gun regulations. I'm really alarmed, for example, about the dramatic, dramatic increase in firearm homicides that happened during the course of the pandemic. And, and what that, it's a complex set of reasons of, about why that happened. But what that says to me is that that there was an increase in gun sales during that time. People were afraid. We had this pandemic coming. People were scared. People didn't know what was going on. The world seemed it was going to an end. People were locked up in their houses. And a lot of people in that situation shot each other or themselves. And that's alarming. So anything um, that people are doing that might reasonably get at that is laudable. I would say for, and there are a lot of different laws, as you pointed out, obstacles are one state and and particularly the federal legislature has absolutely zero, zero appetite for even the most, you know, minor gun laws that exists. They they didn't even ban bump stocks, which I didn't even know what they were before the Las Vegas shooting. There was a, there was a white house, an executive order that did. And two, even in some cases, so I'm thinking perhaps the ghost gun legislation might get there. 
where a regulation seems pretty reasonable, I worry about the U.S. Supreme Court, which is extremely overly pro-Second Amendment protective, I I would say Second Amendment activists at at this point, that refuse to allow even the most reasonable gun, gun law restrictions to stand and that they will be shut down. So the civil remedy that you said might be a way to go. I worry that that could somehow be challenged at the Supreme Court too. But I just don't know. I think between the Supreme Court and Congress, we are going to be a country that is going to be struggling with this for a long time. And and beyond that, beyond the laws too, I think it's the culture. We have a society that because of this protection, the Second Amendment is like a religion almost, you know, people you have to, you know, no, don't take my guns away from me kind of mentality makes it really hard to even talk about the impact of gun violence, particularly self-inflicted gun violence, which affects, we, we talk a lot about, you know, Chicago and all these other things. The number one victims of gun violence tend to be white men and it tends to be by their own hand. And that's a really big problem in America that we really need to talk about, frankly. Well, I hate to end our show on on such a downbeat note, but Look, a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in America are indeed that serious, but you can't get any better coverage and discussion and analysis of them than from Kimberly Atkins' store in her prolific writings for the Boston Globe or on the Sisters-in-Law podcast. I, I, I hate to give our listeners homework, but if you do just one thing, go out and subscribe to that podcast and Beyond Politics. And of course, try a Boston Globe subscription. You won't be sorry you did. Kimberly, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Thanks so much.